Hey everybody, uh, my name is Rob Nixon and this is Dominic Ciccarelli. Uh, we are meeting here today to uh, begin what we hope will be a an interesting series. So thank you for anybody who's joining us at the moment. A little background on myself. My primary business is real estate brokerage. I run a team uh, at pre-real estate. We're based out of Staten Island and we pretty much cover all facets of real estate uh, with a heavy focus on commercial sales and leasing. And uh, Dom, you want to tell you a little bit about yourself? Hello, everybody. Dominic Ciccarelli with Think Design Architecture. Uh, we run a boutique architectural firm in New York City and New Jersey. Uh, I'm also a real estate investor, real estate developer, and manage uh, real estate. Um, Rob Nixon and I decided to do this because we feel like, in a lot of ways, real estate and architecture uh, go hand in hand. Almost in many ways, uh, the two of them can't exist without each other, right? Um, we need to understand the value of what I design is to the end uh, consumer. So the intent of this podcast is to really um, share our experience and help educate both ourselves further, but some of our viewers about putting into real estate deals, uh, getting into real estate, what deals to invest in, um, how to do it, and we'll be building a team. So. We'll be bringing on lawyers and mortgage brokers and uh, accountants, um, project managers, property managers um, to provide their insight on what their role is in the real estate game. Absolutely. And just, yeah, so just to elaborate on that. So Dominic and I have been friends for quite some time. We're involved in a lot of groups together and we kind of, I mean, we're our entire circles are always interested in the same things. And a lot of them are around real estate business in general, right? So uh, we're constantly asking questions like, okay, well, what's the best way to really build a real estate portfolio? What's the best asset class to do it in? What's the best way to, to, to fund deals? Is it best to raise money, fund yourself, uh, have partnerships, et cetera? I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. So rather than just talk about it at dinners or amongst the two of us, we figured, you know what, let's open that up. Let's And then let's talk about kind of what it takes to build a real estate portfolio, all different ways you can do it, uh, ways that we've done it, but ways that we see other people doing it, uh, which in our opinion, we believe starts with uh, really building the right team, which uh, there's so many different professions that really tie into that. Uh, two of which happen to be sitting here, right? And that's real estate brokerage and architecture, right? So uh, my, my I myself as a broker, right? I find myself constantly needing to call somebody like Dominic because, I mean, when we go to value something, very oftentimes the the first question is, okay, so again, asset class, right? So for land, let's just say the number one question is, what's the zoning? What does that zoning allow? What yeah. can we build? And that's something that, uh, of course, I'd pick up the phone, I'd call you, and we would do what? All land has a, has a, a zoning criteria. Um, the city that that land is located in will determine if that land is best suited for residential, commercial, or manufacturing in most cases. And based on what the finished product is when the building is finished, will determine what could be sold or, or, or what will live there, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, or, or what it could be sold for, right? Um, and in many cases, though, the city has it wrong and we have to file for variances, you know, Rob, Rob might come to us and say, hey, you know, this this area is zoned residential, but we think, you know, a deli would be a kick-ass location mm -hmm. in this spot. Then we can go to the city and try to convince them, hey, this is why we feel uh, this is zoned wrong. 
and we could put a commercial building there instead of residential. In many cases on the in the country, it's a lot more straightforward, right? Even in many cases, and maybe you disagree with me, but like Brooklyn, for example, there's there's consistent comp sets, mm-hmm. right? So you kind of have an idea of what you can build, uh, or and what it's going to potentially be worth. In some area in Staten Island, right, where we do a lot of business, or in Manhattan, that is really not the case, right? So there's so much inconsistency, and that's where you really have to have a talented team that's really looking at that and has seen it from different lights because uh, it's just, I mean, I, 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 there's so much inconsistencies. Uh, but yeah, the first thing I try to figure out is, okay, you know, Hey, what can I build here? And based on that, what's, you know, what's it going to be worth? Right. So to jump in, let's just use a simple piece of residential land in New York city. Yep. It's raw land. Um, what can we build? In this case, we can build a one family house. So then you would then say, listen, this size property with this size house, the maximum we can get for it is a million bucks. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, I can't design a $3 million home, right? So then it comes back to us to say, okay, listen, we want you to design the prettiest house in the world, but under a specific budget so the people are into it for more than what it's worth and then can't sell it and either break even or, or, or lose money. So land is certainly a way we see it a lot, right? Or if a house wants to come down or uh, even if we can maybe add something to the property um, and then- Unfortunately, uh, now, especially in the climate we're in, I-, I can't tell you how many times the deals deals that I'm in are just getting held up for every reason that you could think of from violations, uh, uh, open applications, no CFOs, um, illegal work. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, I mean, luckily I can call you, right? But how, yeah. do, how, do, how do you, are you seeing more of this? Yeah. So unfortunately, in times like this, when the uh, real estate market is down, um, it means the city needs money. Or or um, when we go through a, a time like we did with, a, with the governments printing more money or, or spending more money than they can in their budgets, they have to find a way to rec- recoup money. And how do they recoup money? They issue violations. Violations means dollars for the city of New York uh, and a lot of other towns throughout the, throughout the country. So a lot of people come to me and they say, well, I'm never, you know, I'm just a regular guy. Um, I'm never going to need an architect in my life. But yet they're calling me uh, because something happens, right? So to go back to what you were saying, um, you have a, a family that's lived in their home um, or, or they're looking to buy a home, let's mm-hmm. just say. And um, they know nothing about real estate in general. They know nothing about architecture. They just want to buy a home for their family. They find the home, they go into contract, the lawyers get involved, title work starts beginning, and they start finding violations. Um, it could be a violation for a boiler. It could be a violation for an illegal deck. Um, it could be that they converted the garage to a room. And now what happens is all this hard work that the real estate broker and agent put into the deal um, and all the dreams for this buyer are now about to fall apart because now we found these issues. Right. Um, many times, people that file jobs don't close them out, right? They don't get the CFO. Even if they do a small extension home, they don't they don't close it and get the sign-offs, the inspections from the city of New York. Um, it's really important to do that housekeeping because, you know, you think you're a month away from closing and all of a sudden a title report is done and now you find out, wait a minute, they did an extension on this building 10 years ago. It was never closed out. That architect is dead or that architect retired and now everyone's scrambling to save the deal. Right. Um, unfortunately, everyday people get affected by this bogging down of the system. Mm. Um, so you don't always need an architect to build uh, you know, a dream $5 million home or a 30-story building. You know, I get people that you know they lose deals because of a deck. They lose deals because 
you know, um, the boiler wasn't filed. Isn't that crazy? It's um, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So, so again, this just gives more examples on how the real estate professionals and the architects are really coexisting in this space now because mm -hmm. we have to work together in order to get things done. Uh, so it's not just about, hey, we have raw land. What could I build? Because I know I could sell it for a million bucks. Uh, design me a house that costs 600000 to build, right? It's more like, hey, I can't even sell a building anymore because of a, a tiny little... Uh, fence violation or a deck violation or a pool violation um, so we get it's not always glamorous right your mm -hmm. your world and my world isn't always glamorous and we have to really just do these smaller projects to really help the people out so speaking of that right that kind of gets me to a question I'm just so for anybody that might listen who doesn't know you right what is your uh, sweet spot if you will as a company or as yourself, you know, what do you, you know, uh, what do you guys do that you specialize in, and what do you kind of enjoy the most about being an architect, and what is di what differentiates you guys from anybody else? Okay, so what what differentiates us from everyone else is we're a one stop shop, meaning a lot of architects or architectural firms really just prepare your plans and then and then just hand them off to the homeowner. In New York City, getting the job approved through the city agency is actually more difficult than actually drawing the plans. Mm -hmm. um, so what we do, which is different than most people, is we have in-house expediters, we have in-house engineers, we have in-house uh, structural engineers and civil engineers, right? So when a homeowner comes to us to say, hey, I want to get this home built or I want to get this condo renovation approved, in a lot of cases, they're going to have to deal with three or four different types of professionals. In, in this case, they only have to deal with us. So that's definitely what separates us from everyone else. Uh, with respect to our niche market, um, because we have three offices, one in Midtown Manhattan, one in Staten Island, and one in Red Bank, New Jersey, you know, we have vastly different clients in each location. Um, what I love and enjoy the most is these condo renovations, um, office renovations, and restaurant renovations in Manhattan. Um, you're dealing with um, usually higher budgets, mm -hmm. um, which means we can do a lot more cooler stuff. Um, and you're in the action, right? You're in Manhattan. You're you're surrounded by other beautiful buildings, super interesting buildings, uh, interesting clients, interesting uh, businesses around you. Uh, so right now we're really enjoying that work and focus on doing more of that work. Um, in New Jersey, it's the exact opposite. We're doing custom homes. We're doing big extensions on homes. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more suburban than the density of Manhattan. And then I would say Staten Island's right in the middle. You know, um, it's it's a a, a community, a family community, working class community. Um, it's a great place to raise families, and you're really helping the people you know, create a better quality of life for their family. Uh, they might not have the bigger budgets. Um, they might not have the super interesting or sophisticated, uh, as sophisticated, interesting uh, stories, mm -hmm. um, but they're doing beautiful things and we're really able to create beautiful homes on a limited budget. Right. What about you, Rob? So, I mean, you've been in real estate a long time. I mean, you did commercial, I know, for real talk. I mean, listen, you're the commercial guy here on Staten Island. Mm -hmm. What are you enjoying the most now? I think you agree with this, and I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are feeling this, uh, especially in New York. You know, so much of my time is really right now I feel like I'm more of a fireman and a therapist than anything else, right? It's, um, it's not as simple as just, you know, looking at a building or finding somebody, the real estate they love, and 
and getting it, you know, and just selling it or leasing it. It's just, it's, there's just so much to it now that, and they're creating so many hurdles constantly, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's the bureaucracy, whether it's the agencies, whether it's just uh, the banks. I mean, there's just so many different things and so many layers, right? Um, Which, and I think that's kind of interesting and we should probably talk a little bit more about this because I think that that certainly is something that differentiates me, right? So um, one thing that's kind of a, a compliment and a curse is uh, I, I'm usually the guy that people call to fix problems, um, sometimes way down the road, right? Um, you know, so I, I like to look at things uh, a little bit differently and I take a very, very holistic approach. Um, so getting back to like the zoning stuff and, and, and just more so like in valuing properties. Right. So I'll give like an example of one that I'm dealing with now. That's pretty much like my favorite kind of, um, project, if you will. Right. So I've been dealing with, um, a couple business owners, uh, family business, great guys, great business, just absolutely awesome. And I've been dealing with them now for several years. Finally, uh, you know, trying to find the right, uh, location for them to move their business or uh, in this case they're moving their business but um, in plenty of other ones it's you know reloc- uh, it's expanding etc so uh, very oftentimes that takes three to five years right and that's how we've crossed paths a lot of times on restaurant deals which yeah. is you know super cool um, but this is one where I found them the perfect building right it was an owner that uh, actually was just finishing the asset for himself to move in and called him out of the blue. He did not expect a call whatsoever, and he had thrown out a number, and he said, well, if you get me this, I would sell. It worked for the guy, the buyers. It worked for them, right? It works for their business. Uh, they have an amazing business, and the guy was totally blindsided, didn't see it coming, and long story short, we negotiated back and forth, back and forth, uh, and after a painful two months, basically, we have a deal, right? Wow. So it sounds great. In theory, right? But now we have to get past, now we're going to the banking side. So this is a building now that it's going to be for an owner user, right? But that presents, while that should be a good thing, it's it's a challenge from a banking standpoint because the building's vacant. So when I value a building, I look at it, I value it in three, I look at it from three ways. And that's usually how appraisers do it, I think, for the most part, too. So we look at an income approach, right? So we look at the building vacant and we try to come up with, okay, hey, this is what it would be worth to two random tenants, three random tenants, one random tenant, whatever it is. And we try to look at that from a cap rate perspective and put a value on that. And if that looks good, then hopefully that's the one we go with. If it doesn't, then we go with uh, the owner-user approach and we try to go with sales comps, right? So now we look at, uh, okay, what's sold in the area? In this case, there's literally nothing. It does not exist. It does not exist. It's literally a one-of-one kind of asset and that's not working. So we're trying to ride the line with the income approach. Uh, and then the third one is we sometimes try to look at like the land value and what's the asset. Yeah, land uh, and construction. Right. But right now it's pretty much got the best value for it and it's perfect for this owner user. But again, the, the banks and the appraisers haven't really caught up with it. And it's, you know, I'm a big believer and I've heard this before. If there's comps, it's too late. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that. Um, but you know, that's just one example of just like, you know, I, I don't know if you have one recently that stands out of just like a really difficult situation. I mean, the restaurant guy that we know that we've, you know, done some deals with, what you pulled off with, like with DEC, I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, in New York City, and let's just step out of Manhattan for a second, because in Manhattan is a lot of more interior renovations okay. than new, new construction, at least for the projects we work on. Um, 
in order to get a one-family home approved in Staten Island, which is probably the simplest place to get something approved, I'm dealing with seven or eight different agencies. Um, people don't realize when I tell them, hey, I need six to nine months to get your house approved. They're like, listen, you know, I'm building a house like 10,000 other houses. That would Hard be. to remember even the, the amount of acronyms, right? It's, it's unbelievable. Just... So, I mean, just to run through a few of them, we have to go to the borough president to get a house number. It, listen, it takes weeks to do. We have to go to the Department of Finance to square away the taxes if we're, if we're doing a subdivision for a new piece of land. We have to go to the Department of Buildings, obviously. But what people don't expect is going to DEP, going to DOT, the Parks Department. In New York City, the Parks Department has more power than the mayor. I mean, if you have a seven-inch tree in front of your house, which you, you want to put a driveway in, you might have to give them twenty, thirty thousand dollars just to take that tree down. So, you know, like you were just trying to describe, like what your daily, what your daily actions are and tasks are, what you enjoy doing. Listen, I haven't really used the computer program to draw in ten or fifteen years. You right. know, it's because you're you you're you're handling and managing all these other facets of the job, which no one even knows exists. All they want to know is when am I getting my approval? So, um, you know, being business owners, and I talk to a lot of young kids, like you know. I got into architecture very young compared to how most people start their their careers. And my my answer to them when when choosing which career to choose is listen. You're never going to love something all day every day for 20 30 years. Mm-hmm. You, there's going to be ebbs and flows, there's going to be peaks and valleys in your career. There's going to be parts of that business you're going to hate, there's going to be parts of your business you love, right? But if you have an interest in it and you could just grind and just stay focused, you can do it. I love architecture. 5% of my time is actually working on the nuts and bolts of putting a building together. Am I still doing the designs? Absolutely. Uh, but I'm really focusing on managing the team, building relationships with the city, and bringing in new clients. You know, as a business owner, you have to really look 500 feet above the ground, looking mm-hmm. down and, and figure out where you're losing money, where you could be more efficient, where you can grow your business. Um, so, I mean, listen, I think this podcast is going to go in a lot of different directions and we can get really deep in the weeds on a lot of different topics, but, um, you know, I'm always interested to learn more and I'm super excited to, to bring on other, other guests and professionals to, uh, show us how we can do this better. If you want to get into real estate, whether it's as uh, an investment or, uh, whether it's to build a portfolio or to invest passively, you still kind of need all the same things, right? So what do those potentially include, right? A broker, an architect, an attorney, um, a mortgage broker. Those are just some of the original ones, right? Then as you now build this portfolio, let's you have to think about managing it. So perhaps property management. Then you have a portfolio, you want to protect it, right? So now there's insurance, there's accounting. Financial and- planning financial planning there's some creative stuff like uh cost seg or um 1031 exchanges 1031 exchanges that's a great one um and and then of course there's all different now now you have this portfolio right in addition to maybe your your regular business and they say uh which i mean i'm in a book club that you're involved in i'm in a lot of different book clubs a lot of different coaching things they say the average millionaire has seven sources of income right so now a lot of entrepreneurs are the same right they always want more they want to be involved in different things uh they don't want to be overexposed so now there's you know diversifying so now maybe there's um different things you could be doing uh crypto stock uh I mean, NFTs, if, NFTs, yeah. whatever it may be, uh, investing I, in some other businesses, different businesses, lending money, 
lending money. I know people that uh, collect collect wine and make a ton of money, collect yeah. watches, uh, collect cars. I mean, art. There's mm-hmm. just so many different things. Um, and the lifestyles are often similar. Um, the interests are similar, right? Yeah. So I hope that over the next couple months and hopefully years, we can really uh, bring in a lot of those different things, and hopefully people can learn a lot from that. Well, that's a lot of a lot of those a lot of those things you just stated is how you and I got connected, you know. So, you know, both both young guys in similar industries, we cross paths a lot. You know, you right. would find a space for a restaurateur and that restaurateur would hire me as the architect and then we'd cross paths or Do you remember or, when we actually met? I don't think I actually remember. No, yeah, I don't I don't remember. I mean it's been it's been a bunch of years now though. It's gotta I mean, be I was, at it, least eight, nine years. Yeah, hundred percent. I think we had cross paths and knew each other a little bit uh and then maybe maybe it was the first Angelina's Kitchen that we actually did something together. Oh, yeah, 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 could be. Which was probably, that was 2016, I think. Right. So that was, yeah, that was quite some time ago. So, I mean, listen, what I think what draws you and I together and, and creates this good synergy is that, you know, we have common goals on, on our careers, right? Mm-hmm. They have different, they're different careers, but we have places we want to go and we have, we have um, you know, we've created certain levels, right? And we're always trying to level jump to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not always about money. It's just, you know, quality of life, how we want to maybe raise a family, you know, um, the the type of purple, the type of people we want in our circle. Money um, is just a way of keeping score. Well, money yeah, is just, yeah. that's ultimately not what's important in my opinion. That's right. And I know you feel the same way. Yeah. And, and I think having a strong circle around you that you can not only confide in in some, uh, personal things you have going on, but also professionally, and know they're not gonna listen. Everyone makes mistakes, but they're gonna guide you generally in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Is tremendous. I mean, so many people either don't feel comfortable enough to come out of their comfort zone, mm-hmm. um, or just surround themselves by bad people. You know, um, you know, oh, this guy drives a nice car, so I want to hang out with him. Or this guy, you know, um, has a certain connection. I want to hang out with this person. I mean, that's the biggest mistake anybody can make. You know, just find like-minded people, keep core values in place, and just every day grind away, grind away. You, no one's going to become a millionaire overnight. There's no get-rich scheme anymore. No. You just need to put your head down, focus, and every day base hits, base hits. There's no more home runs. Just get up every day, be focused, be organized, and those base hits are going to add up very quickly. Yeah, and I think um, the circles is is so important, right? And I think that's kind of why you and I were in a couple groups together over the years, and then we kind of veered off and we talked about um, putting a trusted group together. We wanted to do that breakfast, right, which I think has worked really well. Um, Again, small circle, uh, like-minded individuals. Uh, and then of course there's this awesome monthly dinner that, you know, you got, you really facilitate, which is awesome. It's Mm -hmm. got, uh, you know, big group. That's a little bit more social. Everyone's just enjoying each other's company. Uh, but I think that's kind of what this is going to turn into as well. And, uh, one thing that I could promise people is that anybody that you see here is going to be somebody that we trust and what we would use. Right. So, um, I always think about like when in college, for example, I really, I hated when professors or teachers would talk about something that they didn't do personally, right? So you can and they had no deep knowledge in. None. They just had a textbook and had to and had to teach it, right? So you know, rest assured that for the most part, anything you're going to see or hear, we've done. Uh, in some cases, we've really fucked up, mm-hmm. and in some ways, we've enjoyed success from it. So um, 
you can certainly be, you know, assured that anybody that you see on the show will uh, be somebody that we trust personally. So I, I think another thing we should really talk about on how the real estate and architecture is connected is, you know, we share a lot of the same clients, right? Um, the three main clients that we probably share are home builders, developers, and end users, right? Right. So an end user is, you know, a, a husband and wife or a family that want to build their home. Um, those type of clients needs need certain uh, needs met met through our firm. And when I meet and take on a client like that, I know that I'm in for a very specific experience, right? I'm not dealing with a, a very savvy person in the industry. I know I have to hold their hand. I know I might have to take do more customer service, take some more phone calls because they're not as familiar with the process and the business as other people are. Um, the other type of client we share is the developer, right? Who is probably the contrast of the end user. That developer knows how long it's gonna take to get something approved from the city. They've done it before. They know taking on a project, what's going to be the hard part, what's going to be the easy part. But that client also tends to not want to pay the fees that the end user would pay because they're typically doing um, higher quantity of projects as opposed to a family that's just going to do a one-off. Right. So I was just curious to hear your approach and how you handle, right? So clearly when you work with a developer or someone that's a big real estate investor that you know owns maybe 100 units and wants to get to two or 300 units, as opposed to that one person is going to be a one-time client from you. I'm going to buy my dream house and you're never going to hear from me again. How do you mentally prepare yourself and set yourself up? Because at the end of the day, your fee is going to be the same, right? Um, plus or minus. I mean, mm -hmm. whether it's 3% or 2% or 4%, whatever it is going those days, the developer is going to pay you the same fee as that end user, but they both bring uh, positive and negative to the relationship, right? Right. So me personally, I've always had the mindset that I'm going to treat everything the exact same, every client the exact same, every project the exact same. As now I've come a lot further in my career, I actually think that's a really terrible mistake and that I, I'm trying to veer away from it. I find myself doing it, you know, still. Um, I've, again, I always look for advice, right? So certain people, uh, I, I don't know if it was a book. I, I think it was actually a guy who told me that he uh, rates his clients every year. And I, uh, I didn't really know what that meant. But he said, no, I, at the end of the year, I looked at every deal I did and I rate my clients and I have my A's, my B's and my C's. And I said, okay, well, tell me what that's like. So it was a guy. And my A's are, they're your, they're, they're your A's. They mm -hmm. are a pleasure to work with. You like the work, they pay and they're just, they're just, and they're loyal. They'll they're always keep coming back. They're just, they're A's. Your B's are your guys that are really kind of a pain in the ass, right? You know, maybe they call too much or... Um, you know, maybe they beat you up on the price, but at the end of the day, they're consistent. You know, they're always going to pick up the phone and they're loyal to you. Those are the B's. Now the C's are the ones that you can't stand dealing with. They're a pain in the ass. They don't pay and they're just a miserable experience and they really suck the life out of you during the day. Right. Those are the ones that I really, I got to cut out. Yeah, I got to yeah, cut yeah, out yeah. because it's just not fair to my other clients to even be, to have energy like that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, so, yeah, that's something that I'm constantly working on, but I'm not, uh, I'm not yeah. there yet. So yeah, for me, you know, I'm just going to use two classes. I'm just going to use the typical real estate developer and then the end user, right? The real estate developer is going to give me 10, 15 homes a year to build or to design, and the end user is going to be a one and done type situation. So um, typically, 
because I can control my fees, unlike you in a lot of cases. Um, the one and done will typically be a higher price. And the reason for the higher price is because I know it's going to be at least three or four times more communication and more handholding than the developer, right? Um, on the developer side, they're going to pay way less, but typically I would not have to answer a lot of those questions. But here's the key problem with the developer. They're going to want to be made number one priority in your office. So it goes back to the old, the 80, 20 rule, right? Where 20% of your clients are really the ones that make your money and the 80 ones are really sucking the life out of you. So for both the developers and the end users, you really need to start using psychology from through experience, like, Hey, and try to feel them out really early on. Is this going to be worth it or not? Uh, because at the end of the day, money means nothing. You know, it's gonna It's the torture and the, and the pain you have to deal with to get through that project. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting how, you know, you have to take a specific approach and I have to take a specific approach, but it really comes down to your gut, right? As you become more experienced in our businesses, you could see from a hundred miles away, listen, this is gonna be a problem. I don't care how much money they give me. I don't care how much the business they give me. It's just not worth my quality of life anymore because we have so much going on. So Rob, why don't we wrap up this segment about how you structure your fees and explain why you have to charge a certain amount and what you know what's really more involved. You're not just walking around showing people a house and then they buy it, right? There's so much behind the scenes that goes on, like this deal you just completed right. Um, right. For, for that for that one in that very one and unique building. Right. So sales and leasing on the brokerage side work entirely differently. Um, so for the most part, on a sale, it's a it's a flat percentage fee, right? And um, this is always a challenge. It's been a challenge since I got in the business because at some point, well, if you go anywhere outside of Staten Island and really outside of Staten Island, there <laughs> the fee is typically anywhere between five and six percent. Nothing to talk about. I mean, you go to Manhattan or you go to downtown Brooklyn, that is the fee. Nothing to talk about. Uh, someone along the way decided to ruin the whole thing and fuck the entire business up at Staten Island and start, you know, at one point I think it was Foxton's doing 2%. And then you have a bunch of brands now that are still, you know, giving 2%, 3%. The reality is you are not getting good service for that. You're just not. And in the market that we're just coming out of, you could, you could afford that, you know, mm -hmm. where people just go with your brother's, you know, brother's friend or this and that. And it's like, I, where I struggle with that is that, okay, if God forbid I was, you were diagnosed with some terrible sickness, right? You'd probably want to find the best person that treats that in the entire world, right? Of right. Arguably, whether it's your home or your commercial building, it's probably one of, one, if not the most valuable asset you own. I couldn't agree. Why more. should that be any different? Mm -hmm. You know, and when I go in for, uh, listing appointments, for example, and then people say, hey, what do you charge? And I come in and I say, well, in this case, uh, we charge 5%, and here's all the marketing services that we're going to include with that. In mm -hmm. addition, you get me 24-7. I'm going to get you from start to finish. I'm not just going to you know, forget about you. We don't right. just throw it up on MLS or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We work the listings. And I get the... You get the people that you get the value people that really want value, and then you get people that just want the bottom, right? And it's like, well, the last guy told me he would he would give three percent. I said, okay, so well, what did he start with? Five, okay. So you met with him for how long? I don't know. He was here for twenty minutes, okay. So he went from five percent to three percent in twenty minutes. If this guy can't negotiate for himself, 
how do you expect him to negotiate for you? Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, how? It's just it makes no sense. Yeah. But then on this on this leasing side, we typically get paid a percentage of the lease term, uh, whatever that may be, uh, and it's payable half at signing, half at commencement, whatever it may be. Uh, now I will work with people sometimes on the payment structure of the timeline right to maybe earn with them especially if it's uh if there's a cash uh restraint in the beginning mm -hmm. uh and i don't mind doing that it's when people try to beat me up on the amount that i get right. a little upset now again a lot of people think that hey you sign them up you throw the house up on uh mls and you you showed the house a few times and you sold it i mean clearly there's you know that's probably five percent of what you really do right from the moment i sign you on as my real estate agent slash broker, mm -hmm. and you put this house on MLS, um, explain to me the steps, you know, obviously f doing the open houses, showing it, marketing it. Okay, now you have a buyer. And then what happens after that? I mean, there's appraisals. I'm sure there's a bunch of other things. Dealing so, with banks. So residential and commercial, similar enough. So listing comes in, right? Uh, or somebody calls, they want to potentially list. We do a CMA. We value the property. We come up with what that looks like roughly. Then once I go see the asset, then I get a much better feel for like, hey, it's either on the lower end, the higher end of those numbers, right. whatever it is. We agree on a sale price. That's the easy part. Send over listing papers. I sign them. You know, we do everything digitally now. We try to keep it super simple. Um, now from there, what we do, uh, which I think is, I, I, it's different. I know for sure than what I've heard from other people. I mean, we really sit down and come up with a custom marketing plan for each listing because mm -hmm. everyone's different. Yeah. Um, and sometimes certain marketing is good to have, whether it's, uh, if it's a house, you know, Matterports, uh, floor plans, et cetera. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not depending yeah. on how the house shows. Uh, in some cases I'd rather spend it on, uh, like if I know some of the investors are coming out of, uh, Brooklyn, for example, maybe I do a lot of advertising in Brooklyn, uh, we use a lot of different, you know, publications mm -hmm. that are really effective. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, we get an we show we show we get an offer, and now you see the market's changing in a good way, right? Because and I've talked to really talented realtors, and they're actually happy about it because for the longest time we weren't really doing our job because things were just crazy, right? There's crazy bidding wars, people overpaying, right. they're waving they're waving inspections, uh, inspections, and we it's just yeah. ridiculous. Now, now. Uh, I'm finding that a lot of deals that I'm negotiating, we've already passed the number days ago, and now we're working on the terms, right? And there's so many terms, especially with commercial deals, uh, contingencies, whether it be uh, with financing or just um, whether there's leases there, uh, environmentals, uh, title. I mean, there's just so many things. I Violations. I mean, what, what, what shape you have to deliver it in. Um, so... That's where where it really the, I think the expertise mm -hmm. comes in and making sure it actually closes. Uh, on the commercial side, when a residential deal goes to contract, it's got pretty much like a ninety percent chance of closing, if not more. Mm -hmm. Resident um, commercial is fifty fifty, maybe sixty four. Wow, uh, I've had deals die a day or two before they close. Literally. Unbelievable. Um, I was involved with one recently. That's all right. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So that's uh. I mean, it's there's a lot to it. Yeah, a lot to yeah, it. yeah. And I mean, we should be paid properly for our time. Yeah, uh, as the same way you should be. But you, you know, listen when the when the home inspector goes by, you're there. When the bank has questions, and they they're filtering through you so a lot of the questions, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, you have a tremendous amount of time invested. You know, it might not be physically at the asset or at the home, but yep. you know, behind closed doors that nobody really sees. You know, see, that's a good example, right? So Dominic was referencing just now a uh, property. It was a 
three family that I was selling. You thought it was a three family. I thought it was a three family. <laughs> it was operating as a three family. It looked like a three family. So we were selling it as a three family. Uh, so it turns out there were some open violations there called Dominic. And it looked like we were going to be able to do it, right? And then you went there. Yeah. And now you went there to... There was a base open basement. Yeah, uh, the a basement apartment. violation. Yeah, right. So you went there to hopefully clear up that one violation, and what'd you find? <laughs> <laughs> so we we I show up to the house. I think I'm I think I'm gonna uh, see an illegal apartment in a basement that just needs to be legalized. Right. And as I'm walking through, you know, again in the business a long time, seeing a lot of homes. You know, I can see the outside of a home and know what the interior layout is. I mean, because, listen, a lot of builders built 30 of the same homes, mm-hmm. 50 of the same homes. So, and, and the city knows this as well, right? So, the moment I pre- present a plan to the city and say, and call things existing, they're like, we know these houses. This was not the original layout, right? So, right, again, right, right. Be, being in the business. <laughs> they don't fall for that? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> they're like, oh, it was always looked like this. I mean, no, listen, between technology and the city's experience, nobody's going to get off on the city. Everyone, the city knows all the all the uh, the tricks that people do. But anyway, after being in this building for 15 minutes, I'm like, something just doesn't look right. And this particular person buying the home happened to be a personal friend of mine from childhood, which, again, was just a coincidence. And um, as I'm walking through, I'm like, this entire house was renovated without permits. I mean, there were rooms with no windows. And um, it was not a three-family. It was a two-family. They squeezed a bunch of bedrooms in where, in reality... If we had to legalize it, I think the whole building would have to been gutted because it didn't meet certain criteria. And uh, yeah, it's it's crazy. You were you thought you had a deal a month, you know, you thought you'd set the closing table in a couple of weeks. And that one also turns out, which is common in New York, which you should probably mention that there was a street widening through the front half of the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those of you who don't know, you know, all of the streets in New York City were pretty much created in the early 1900s, and in the real early 1900s. These very sophisticated city planners predicted what streets would be busier than others. So although the street was only open 30 feet wide, on paper, it's maybe a 60 or 70 foot wide street. Um, and there's streets like that all throughout New York City, and it's called a widening line. So basically, when you buy that property and you have a widening line, you you have the rights to use that area. But if the city ever wanted to widen the street... They can give you like a dollar for all that land and take it back to widen the street because it's almost like eminent domain, right? It's for the better welfare of the community. Um, this particular property hug, hugged the front property line and a widened line did go right through, which I wouldn't say is uncommon, but it was just like the icing on the cake for this deal. Yeah. And um, listen, we had to do our job and uh, the, de- the deal did fall apart. I fell apart. I felt bad for Rob. But uh, it happens. It happens. We, we usually can find a way through, and this one was just like from the very beginning, we would just dealt a rough hand. I mean, we had uh, uh, we had a, a a unit that had to be uh, vacated. We had an eviction. We had uh, that open permit. We had the street widening. I mean, he built, like, he rebuilt a retaining wall illegally. Yeah, I mean, we, but like we were really there. Like we got through all of them. We made price reductions, and then. When you had called me and you were like, yeah, so I'm like, all right, so this is workable? And you're like, yeah, it's workable if you gut the entire house. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I think I start cool, the conversation cool. by Rob. I think I'm killing one of your deals. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, all right, awesome. Uh, so that one was one that un- unfortunately could not see a way through. I felt terrible for the other guys on the deal too. But yeah, um, sometimes that happens. 
That's yeah. the name of the game. For me on the pricing, um, you know, no two jobs are the same. Um, it depends on how long the job's going to take. It depends on how many different city agencies I need to go to. So the moment you call me, there are three typical types of jobs. I call it a one-month job, a three-month job, and a six-month job. A one-month job is like a deck or like a cellar renovation, um, changing a boiler, mm -hmm. very simple things like that. The three-month job is your restaurants, your professional office spaces, an interior renovation to a home, no enlargements. The six-month job is any enlargement, any new building, minimum. And then listen, we can go for variances and go into city planning and you get into, you know, I'm on jobs for three, four years sometimes. Um, so that's the first thing. I have to really understand how long does my team need to be committed to that project? Um, and then how many city agencies do I have to wrestle with along the way? Right. Um, so unfortunately, no two jobs are the same. I get phone calls from real estate agents or lawyers all the time. Hey, I have a client that wants to build a home. You know, how long? And I'm like, listen, I need the address. I need the land survey. I just need things. I'll give you, I'll give you an outline within 48 hours, but I can't just shoot off the hip and say every one family in Staten Island is going to be x amount of dollars it's mm -hmm. just impossible these days the bureaucracy is just out of control speaking of right so in this case i had a deal that just wasn't salvageable which i really honestly usually pretty rare yeah do you get that where things are just not workable yeah. like so not buildable that's got to be common yes but so, what about issues like open violations things like that like can yeah. they not be cured yeah all the time so i don't want to stay too focused on Staten Island. Um, but for this case, I will. Um, since the Verrazano Bridge was built, that's what really caused the boom on Staten Island for development. And all of the good pieces, you know, there's a lot of wetlands on Staten Island. So all of the good pieces were built on. I mean, builders were out here, you know, the economy was booming for many, many decades. Um, typically now, if I get brought a vacant piece of land and that land's been vacant for 60 years, 70 years, I have to assume there's something wrong with it. And in most cases, if there's something wrong with it, it's because there's a wetland issue. Uh, the wetlands are controlled by the state, not the city. Uh, it's like dealing with the New York City Police Department as opposed to the FBI. What are wetlands? So wetlands are natural watercourses that just drain, right? So Staten Island has a lot of clay. Uh, we're an island. We're surrounded by water. So, um, and we also have a lot of hills, right? We have Toad Hill, Grimes Hill. Uh, Lighthouse Hill, um, Emerson Hill. So what happens is uh, the low-lying areas near the water are almost like uh, marshland, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's where the water comes down from the land and slowly seeps into back into the bay and, and the ocean. Um, these waters are governed by the state because they don't want contamination going into the water. Uh, now, you can have a wetland property. It could be dry, but it's just within a certain proximity to the wetlands. Mm. So if you're within 150 feet from wetlands, um, DEC, the state, wants to understand what you're doing and approve it. And a minimum time at DEC is nine or 10 months. Mm. Um, and if you can't prove that your development won't affect the wetlands and you can't prove it's a certain distance away from the wetlands, they won't approve it. So that's a big uh, agency that kills a lot of projects. Now, on the on the illegal conditions that I have to legalize. Um, in most cases, I don't want to say, I would say 50-50, right? Um, a big thing a lot of people do is add these screen rooms to the back of the homes mm -hmm. or they enclose porches. These screen rooms don't have the fire ratings um, and the proximity you need from the property Any lines. 
they have no fry lighting. It's like a piece of metal, you know, it's right. a piece of metal, uh, one inch thick or half inch thick metal, right. um, sometimes right on the property line, right? Especially in semi-detached homes and townhouses. So um, nine out of 10 times, those have to come down. Decks are big, they have to come down. Um, I've been involved with illegal extensions that have to come down. Uh, people just, some have a mentality. I'm just doing it, it's my land, this is America, and I'm doing it. And then when they go to sell their house or refinance it or cash out, you know, they run into these problems. So with certain markets, right? What have you seen now? You've been, you've done another cycle than me. Uh, when were you, would banks kind of turn a blind eye to it or not care versus, you know, hey, we're not doing this deal? Yeah, so my experience is trends in the market, right? So when you're in a booming economy and real estate's going crazy, 05, 06, mm -hmm. um, you know, just now before this this past recession and, and things are just, like you said, the, the real estate was flying off the shelves. You guys didn't have to do the work that you normally had to do, right? right. Um, typically in good markets, the banks are more lenient is my experience. And when I say more lenient, if it's supposed to be a one family and it's a four family, they're not gonna allow that. But they would allow the deck that's maybe too big or they would allow the shed that's in the wrong spot or the pool that's in the wrong spot. Mm -hmm. um, but I have seen the contrast of that where in really bad markets, one which is coming out of and back in 08, um, illegal deck, we want you to legalize it. Put money in escrow. And these poor people have to you know, uh, drop five, six, ten thousand dollars $10,000 off the price just to go through the nuances of, of legalizing it or, or taking it down. You know, right. um, another thing, is I've been involved in two huge, um, I don't want to call it takedowns, but two huge um, successes for the city of New York. Um, one of them was there was a community of townhouses, maybe 200 homes, 30 years old, 40 year old community. And over time, everyone builds decks, builds decks, builds decks. Now it's a townhouse community. They're all, they're all attached. Two neighbors get into a fight. The city comes out, stands up on this deck, and sees a sea of decks, right? Left, right, and behind them to the houses on the other street. Issued like 150 deck violations. Unbelievable. I mean, and not one of them could have been legalized the way it was. Every one had to be modified. So what happened? So it was a, a homeowner association. I had a relationship with somebody. They brought me in. Of course, I had to give them a great deal. And everyone had to get a survey. Everyone had to get an architect. Everyone had to get a builder. And cut these decks back. I mean, it was a five, wow. six, seven, eight thousand dollar expense. Not to me, but all in for these people times one hundred and fifty. Wow. So yeah, I mean, uh, the city and the city got paid. You know, they got probably paid five, six hundred dollars per house, one hundred and fifty houses. You know, just for that one complaint between two neighbors. So that that's the one, the one thing that drives me crazy, right? Is the city's obviously got all these streams of income. They yeah. get it every way. And yet our streets are so bad. Yeah, like our golf courses are terrible. Like these things <laughs> drive me crazy. You know. What about, um, and maybe this isn't included here, but I'm just curious. What is the tree fund? Okay. <laughs> so when you build a house, at yeah. the end, you have to file something for Parks Department? Is that yeah, right? yeah. So as I stated earlier, the Parks Department has more power than the mayor, right? Okay. Um, I'll explain in detail. There's two types of trees in New York City, street trees and site trees. Uh, street trees are typically the trees in that little planting strip at your curb. And site trees are the trees on your property. Now, sure. in some instances, the city does have some control of the site trees as well, but in most cases, they don't. Okay. So when when the mayor when Mayor Bloomberg was in office, I believe, he put into law that he was going to plant a million trees in New York City. And in fact, he wasn't planting any. He was making homeowners and developers install trees 
at the curbs as they built and enlarged their homes. The the rule of thumb is one tree per every 25 feet of frontage. So you own a 50 by 100 lot, you have to have two trees in front. Now, if you can't fit them because of a hydrant or a curb cut or a utility pole, you still have to plant those trees someplace else and Parks Department will tell you the species and where. And you have to give a two-year guarantee. Now, if you don't want to plant that, the trees, there's something called a tree fund where Parks Department will take your money and say, we're going to plant the tree for you. And who knows where this money is going? I'm not saying they are not planting trees, but it's like $1,700, $1,800 a tree. Okay, that's one way Parks Department and the city of New York is making money. Now, let's just say you have that same 50 by 100 lot. You want to build a home on it. You need to put a curb cut in to get to that home, a driveway. Sure. The tree's in the way. Well, that's a city-owned tree. You can't just take the tree down. The bigger the tree, the more money they're going to charge you to take down the tree because their stance is they own it and they've been maintaining it since that tree was born. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people pay in the six figures to take down trees just to be able to put a house on the property. Wow. So the tree fund is a big topic in New York City. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of millions. dollars. No, yeah, millions. yeah. I, I got, I, I'm uninvolved in a job now where somebody has to pay $40,000 just to take the tree down. 